Hello and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, Thursday, December 29th. I'm your reader, Ben Stein, and I'll go ahead and I will open with, I believe, some national news about Wyoming. Wyoming bullishly courts crypto even after collapse of FTX, from Mead Groover of the Associated Press. From Cheyenne, Wyoming, software engineer Jay Yang got a lot of questions from friends when he moved from Silicon Valley with plans to launch his cryptocurrency exchange, not in the up-and-coming urban crypto hubs of Miami or Austin, Texas, but the windswept plains of southeastern Wyoming. While the collapse of the massive FTX exchange and recent arrest of its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, have compounded concerns about crypto, Wyoming remains full steam ahead in wooing the industry. It has enacted a suite of new laws, with possibly more to come, seeking to make the industry more regulated and reputable to attract businesses like Yang's. Quote, FTX would not have happened if it was a Wyoming company, said Stephen Lupian, director of the two-year-old Center for Blockchain and Digital Innovation at the University of Wyoming. Quote, Wyoming got it right. We knew five years ago, when we started down this path, that appropriate regulation was the way to go. While Lupin contends the state's agencies would have picked up on the shenanigans going on with the exchange, others aren't so sure. There wouldn't be anybody in Wyoming who's sophisticated enough to audit something on the scale of FTX, said Cheyenne attorney Larry Wolf. If you're a true believer, of course you'll say it could never happen here, but of course it could happen here. Cheyenne, Wyoming's capital city of 65,000 people is home to a U.S. Air Force nuclear missile base, a historic Union Pacific rail yard, abundant old diners and country bars, and sprawling cattle ranches in every direction. So far, there's little sign of the crypto industry that Wyoming has courted for the past five years. But Yang says fledgling exchanges like the one he's hoping will open for business in 2023 could be the start of an influx in the state. His Tayson Incorporated business already has about a dozen employees, about one-third of the company's global workforce, working in a downtown office building. Quote, we said, okay, what is the right place to locate out of? And Wyoming is the right place, Yang said. Basically, they've passed a whole set of laws that makes it easier for me to do business. Even after the FTX collapse that wiped out potentially thousands of investors, Yang says he feels good about casting his lot with the least populated state and its many new laws seeking to attract crypto and blockchain businesses. Some of those new laws seek to discourage speculating with crypto bank customers' digital assets, a suspected cause of FTX's fall. Quote, keeping customers safe is really what we're doing, Yang said. You should have full access to your money. And if something goes wrong in the exchange, the default should be you get your money back, not having to worry about what the bankruptcy court is doing and all this nonsense. Wyoming officials remain bullish on crypto. The digital currencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum based on decentralized encrypted ledgers called blockchain. Much of crypto's appeal is there's no middleman. Money can move freely between people without the involvement of government or traditional banks. Transactions are instantaneous. Although scant legal and regulatory oversight appeals to drug dealers and other criminals, 
who need to move money discreetly. All the while, the value of crypto, which skeptics say is rooted in nothing more than the say-so of its users, is by now famously unstable, with Bitcoin alone down in value by almost two-thirds in the past year. Wyoming's strategy amid all of this was to attract the crypto industry with the respectability of regulation. Though many traditional banks help customers invest in crypto, Wyoming is among very few states allowing crypto banks called Specific Purpose Depository Institutions, SPDIs, or Speedies. Wyoming Speedies can't issue loans, can't reuse customers' funds without their approval, and must back up 100% of customer deposits with liquid funds. But while Wyoming has issued four state licenses for crypto banks since 2020, none has fully opened for business, if at all. That's largely contingent on a federal lawsuit filed by one of the banks, Custodia, seeking access to Federal Reserve Services, including its electronic payments system. Should it win authorization, Custodia and other banks would provide a massive financial boost to Wyoming because they would be required to pay the state 0.02% of their assets each year, CEO Caitlin Long said. Um, when you start to get billions and billions of assets coming into Wyoming, that starts to add up, Long said. Traditional banks do not pay that. Wyoming has even set aside $4 million to help University of Wyoming students experiment with crypto staking or establishing ownership in cryptocurrency. They have developed a comprehensive scheme of regulation that is much more advanced than any other state in the country is doing. They are encouraging companies to think about Wyoming, said Mary Beth Buchanan, America's president and global chief legal officer at corporate and government crypto consultant Merkel Science. But Wolf, the attorney, calls it a crypto plague on the Wyoming legislature. They may tell you there's some little business here, Wolf said, but that's not actually turning into anything that resembles how we are going to fund schools, how do we fund healthcare, how do we fund anything. Researchers may have cracked why some people have long-term smell loss from COVID-19. From Raleigh, North Carolina, last February, Ruth Sheehan recovered from a COVID-19 infection that took away her sense of smell. Nearly two years later, her olfactory world is still dark. The smells of perfume, the Thanksgiving turkey, subtle food seasoning, and coffee are similarly lost on her nostrils. Sheehan said, she is grateful. She mostly came away from the infection unscathed, but added, I definitely miss spelling things. I figured eventually it would come back, but it just hasn't. Most people who lose their sense of smell from a COVID infection recover within a few weeks, but an unlucky minority of the population, about 5%, according to one study, experience smell and taste lost months or years after their initial infection. Duke researchers may have finally figured out what is happening in the noses of people like Sheehan, who never fully recover. The process is described in a paper published Wednesday in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Understanding this mechanism could help doctors design treatments for the condition, which so far lacks an effective treatment, said Dr. Bradley Goldstein, a Duke neuroscientist who led the research. The researchers gathered 24 nose tissue samples 
nine from people with long-term smell loss from COVID, two from patients who recovered from COVID without smell loss, and 13 from people who never had COVID at all. The findings appeared pretty striking to us. There really are some very obvious differences, Goldstein said. Under the microscope, his research team found that people with long-term smell loss had obvious inflammation in a part of the nose dedicated to smell. I'm not talking about sort of this rip-roaring, severe nasal inflammation where you're super congested, blowing your nose, and feeling like you're sick, he said. It's more at a local microscopic level. That inflammation could explain why the samples from the smell loss group had substantially fewer olfactory nerve cells, the key cells, for smelling, Goldstein said. Furthermore, they found that the inflammation was likely hindering the body's ability to regenerate the depleted nerve cells. Now that scientists have identified the types of immune cells likely responsible for smell loss, Goldstein said he hopes doctors will look into whether drugs that target those inflammatory signals can be repurposed. The findings in Wednesday's paper could also have implications for the treatment of long COVID more broadly, Goldstein said. Long COVID can affect lots of different organs in our body, he said. It's possible that a very similar process is happening in those other places. Many mysteries about COVID related to smell loss still exist. The most outstanding remaining question is why some people like Sheehan experience persistent smell loss while others recover. Goldstein hypothesized that it could have to do with which viruses people were previously exposed to. Goldstein said a loss of smell can have a significant impact on quality of life. Some studies show an association between smell loss and heightened anxiety and depression. It's one of those things that's sometimes a bit underappreciated until it's damaged or not working, he said. Then people realize how important it is. Uh, from that, we'll go ahead and move to the story about Southwest Airlines. Southwest cancellations continue amid meltdown. New York Representative Alex Santos investigated. Rapper missing since July. Get your morning headlines. So these are the headlines for today. The 29th, uh, top headline is Southwest. Um, Southwest cancellations continue as airline deals with meltdown fallout. As Southwest Airlines scrambled to get its planes back in the air and its passengers back home heading into Thursday, U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has taken a sharp line with the company. He's pulling no punches, referring to the situation as a complete meltdown of the system. National Guard checks homes in Buffalo for blizzard victims from the Associated Press. The National Guard is going door-to-door in parts of Buffalo and its suburbs to check on people who lost power during western New York's deadliest winter storm in decades. Authorities are facing the tragic possibility of finding more victims amid melting snow as a deep freeze eases into milder weather. Erie County Executive Mark Polencars says officials fear they may find people who died alone or are ailing. Officials say more than three dozen people so far are reported to have died because of the blizzard that raged Friday and Saturday. Temperatures rose above 40 degrees Wednesday and are expected to be in the low 50s by Friday. Also from the Associated Press, Russia hits key infrastructure with missiles across Ukraine. Russian missiles struck Ukraine in the biggest wave of strikes in weeks, hitting power stations and other critical infrastructure Thursday during freezing winter weather. 
Russia fired 69 missiles at energy facilities and Ukrainian forces shot down 54. Ukrainian military chief General Valery Zalyuzhiyi said. Local officials said attacks killed at least two people around Kharkiv, um, Ukraine's second largest city. Strikes also wounded at least six people across the country, although the toll of the attacks are growing as officials treated the hurt and got a sense of the day's damage. Russia dispatched explosive drones to selected regions overnight before broadening the barrage, the Ukrainian Air Force said. New York Representative Alex Santos investigated for lying about his past. U.S. Representative-elect George Santos of New York is now under investigation by the Nassau County District Attorney's Office. The development adds to a loudening uproar over revelations that the Republican lied about his heritage, education, and professional life when he campaigned successfully for U.S. Congress. Despite intensifying doubt about his fitness to hold federal office, Santos has thus far shown no signs of stepping down, even as he has publicly admitted to a long list of fabrications. He is scheduled to be sworn in Tuesday. If he assumes office, he could face investigations by the House Committee on Ethics and the Justice Department. Lack of information on China's COVID-19 surge stirs global concern. Moves by several countries to mandate COVID-19 tests for passengers arriving from China reflect global concern that new variants could emerge in its ongoing explosive outbreak, and that the government may not inform the rest of the world quickly enough. There have been no reports of new variants to date, but China has been accused of not being forthcoming about the virus since its first surfaced in the country in late 2019. The worry is that it may not be sharing data now on any signs of evolving strains that could spark fresh outbreaks elsewhere. The U.S., Japan, India, South Korea, Taiwan, and Italy have announced testing requirements for passengers from China. U.S. to sell Taiwan anti-tank systems amid rising China threat. The U.S. State Department has approved for sale of an anti-tank mine-laying system to Taiwan amid the rising military threat from China. The department on Wednesday said the volcano system and all related equipment would cost an estimated $180 million. It's capable of scattering anti-tank and anti-personnel mines from either a ground vehicle or helicopter, the type of weapon some experts believe Taiwan needs more of to dissuade or repel a potential Chinese invasion. To advertise that threat, China's military sent 71 planes and seven ships toward Taiwan in a 24-hour display of force directed at the self-ruled island it claims is its own territory, Taiwan's defense ministry said Monday. China's military harassment of Taiwan has intensified in recent years. A massive fire at a Cambodian hotel casino has injured over 60 people and killed at least 19. Officials warned the death toll would rise after the search for bodies resumes Friday. Bantei Menche Province's Information Department head, head said the blaze started around midnight Wednesday and was put out over 12 hours later at 2 p.m. Thursday. He said more than 60 people were injured and the death toll was expected to rise once rescuers are able to access victims who are believed to still be under debris or in locked rooms. The Grand Diamond City Casino in the bustling town of Poipet is just a short walk from the border checkpoint with Thailand where casinos are illegal. 
A familiar mix of disappointment, patience, and determination spread among migrants on Mexico's northern border waiting to enter the United States as they face the reality that pandemic-era asylum limits would remain for now. Cautious optimism for an immediate opening had prevailed after a judge ordered in November that a public health rule known as Title 42 authority end December 21st. But the U.S. Supreme Court dashed these hopes with a 5-4 decision Tuesday to hear arguments over the policy in February and to keep it in place until they rule. The family of rapper Theophilus London has filed a missing persons report with Los Angeles police this week and are asking for the public's help to find him. London's family and friends believe someone last spoke to him in July in Los Angeles. That is according to a family statement released Wednesday by Secretly, a music label group that has worked with the rapper. London's relatives have been trying to determine his whereabouts over the last few weeks and filed a police report earlier this week. An LAPD spokesperson confirmed that a report for London was taken. And finally... Uh, for headlines, in San Diego, College Bowl Roundup, Knicks number 15 Oregon rally past UNC and Holiday Bowl. Arkansas-Kansas go to three overtimes. Bo Nix threw a six-yard touchdown pass to Chase Cota on fourth down with 19 seconds left, and Camden Lewis's PAT bounced off the left upright and went through to give number 15 Oregon a wild 28-27 victory against North Carolina in the Holiday Bowl on Wednesday night at Petco Park. Uh, now to some Iowa news. Um, this is from Jared Strong of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. The state's COVID-19 infection rate declined about 40% over the past week, according to the state health data. An Iowa Department of Health and Human Services update Wednesday showed 2,148 infections in the past week among people who were not previously infected by the coronavirus. The total number of positive tests was 2,808, which includes reinfections of people who had already contracted COVID-19. The state does not include reinfections in the new documented cases it reports to federal health officials, and the state does not track the results of at-home rapid tests. The number of infected people who are receiving inpatient treatment at Iowa hospitals declined 11% from a week ago. On Wednesday, there were 243 people hospitalized with COVID-19. Of those... 20 were under intensive care. The state also Wednesday reported 36 new deaths that might have been caused by the virus for a total of 10,423 since the start of the pandemic. More than half of the state has an elevated risk of the virus, according to a recent U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention analysis of infection and hospitalization rates. Counties where the virus community levels are rated medium or high are in western Iowa and far northern and eastern parts of the state. Uh, Moving now to Mega Millions. Mega Millions jackpot up to $640 million after no big winner from the Associated Press in Des Moines. A giant Mega Millions jackpot grew larger Wednesday to an estimated $640 million after another drawing without a winner. No one won the lottery game's top prize Tuesday night, making it 21 straight drawings without anyone matching all six numbers. The next drawing will be Friday uh, Friday night. The huge jackpot comes less than two months after the largest lottery prize ever, a $2.04 billion Powerball prize that was won November 8th in California. So far, that big winner hasn't stepped forward to claim the prize. 
The reason for all the big prizes is simple. Long odds ensure there are fewer winners, and the long streets of lottery futility allows jackpots to grow ever larger week after week. The odds of winning a Mega Millions jackpot is 1 in 302.6 million. The advertised jackpot of 640 million is for a winner who opts to be paid with an annuity, doled out through annual payments over 29 years. Nearly all winners take the cash option, with for Friday's drawing will be an estimated 328.3 million. Mega Millions is played in 45 states as well as Washington, D.C. and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And we'll move to more of the Midwest. Midwest soil is eroding faster than ever. Modern farming could be to blame. Midwest soil is eroding at an alarming rate, according to new first-of-its-kind research. Researchers at the University of Massachusetts found that the rate of soil erosion in the Midwestern U.S., is 10 to 1,000 times greater than it was before modern agriculture practices reigned supreme across the region. The study found that before the modern agriculture, the rate of soil erosion was vastly smaller than what is now deemed an acceptable amount of erosion by the United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA. The Midwest is losing soil for most of these sites about 100 times faster than it's forming. Isaac Larson, a geoscience professor at the University of Massachusetts and a study co-author, told Grist. Larson, an Iowa native, said the loss of soil is a concern across the board, from the fragility of food production to concerns over groundwater pollution. He said the rich soil the Midwest is known for has been eroding and replaced with synthetic chemicals like fertilizers and pesticides. A different study released earlier this year by Larson found that the Midwest lost roughly two millimeters of soil per year, which is double what the USDA deems acceptable in the past 160 years. University of Massachusetts researchers found a method to get data on how much soil has been lost since before mass machinery and man disrupted the Earth's surface. By studying the amount of beryllium-10, a rare element found in stardust, that makes its way to the Earth's surface after distant stars explode, scientists were able to find untouched Midwestern fields and prairies with rich amounts of space dust. When compared to fields used for corn and soybean production across the Midwest, which include sites in Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas, the tilled fields had far less concentration of beryllium-10. Larson said the Midwest has lower natural erosion rates compared to other regions, but agriculture has sped up these rates drastically. If we can find ways to still have agriculture, but with erosion rates that are comparable to these long-term erosion rates, we're able to sustain thick, organic, rich soil, Larson said. The push for climate, smart agriculture, and farming solutions has grown. Millions of dollars have poured in from private corporations and nonprofits in recent years, and now the federal government is pushing for $20 billion for farmers to adopt climate-smart practices. Generally, two methods seen to help protect soil health are cover crops, fusing vegetation not meant to be harvested in between harvested crops to protect the soil from erosion, and no-till farming, where growers try not to disturb the soil during planting and harvesting as much as possible to ensure nutrients stay locked into the ground and 
and erosion doesn't occur. Both of these methods are used in combination with changes to harvests, such as planting perennial crops across the country, as the nation's agricultural industry adapts to a warming climate. While the effectiveness of popular methods like cover crops has been challenged, despite more and more Midwest farmers using them, agriculture advocates continue to push for some more farmers to adopt less intrusive methods to stop erosion. Dr. Kathy Day, Climate Policy Coordinator for National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, or NSAC, an advocacy organization, said climate adoption and soil health vary by region, from the growth of agroforestry to a push for no fertilizer. But across the board, more funding is needed for farmers to learn and adopt practices to prevent soil loss. She said federal legislation was at the top of her mind to help farmers and growers look to change their methods. We're asking that they put a priority on soil health and put a priority on climate mitigation and adaptation as well, Day said. Visit Mason City looks to 2023 after a successful year. It was a big year for Visit Mason City. 2022 was an incredible year for events. After two years of very limited in-person gatherings, we were excited to welcome tens of thousands of new visitors to Mason City, said Lindsay James, executive director. This year marked the return of many events and large group gatherings that had been suspended by the pandemic in Mason City. Those events included the Preserve Iowa Summit, Iowa Geocachers Organization, Iowa Treasurers Association, and Iowa State Pedal Tractor Pull Championships. The organization also partnered with Clear Lake Chamber of Commerce to host several Midwest travel riders and show them the local sites. Visit Mason City worked with the Music Man Square to sponsor Team Trouble in River City, which competed at the Red Bull Iowa Soapbox Race in June. The highlight of 2022 for Visit Mason City and the entire community was being an overnight stop for Ragbri on July 27th. An estimated $4.6 million was generated in a single 24-hour period, according to previous Globe Gazette reporting. Mason City was the fourth day of riding, Emmitsburg to Mason City, and the longest stretch of 105 miles. It was dubbed the Century Day, a tradition of having a 100-mile day that returned to Ragbri this year. Being the midway point for the journey, Ragbri Mason City went big with two headliner entertainers and more than 50 food vendors and booths. Organizers had to manage six campground locations, coordinate volunteers, and meet many other logistical challenges. After two years of so much uncertainty, it's definitely rewarding to see and feel the positive impact of tourism in our community and our team's efforts. We're excited to keep building on this momentum, James said. Here are some of the impactful events from Visit Mason City's fiscal year, which ran from October 21 to September 22, according to James. Uh, Visit Mason City fulfilled 28,869 requests for information from all 50 states and 32 foreign countries. 105,136 unique users visited. Visit Mason City worked with 134 meetings, sport events, and motor coach groups resulted in an estimated 110,118 visitors to the community and $17.2 million in visitor spending. For 23, Visit Mason City will continue to enhance visitors' experiences, increase awareness of the organization and the impact of tourism, and increase the economic impact of tourism. 
James said the group also will work to attract more groups to Mason City and work to expand its team. We'll be working to increase our communication to local audiences and sharing more about the work we do and the resources we provide. We really want to nurture a spirit of community pride and become more top of mind for local residents, said James. James said people should be on the lookout for announcements about the Jefferson Highway Association's conference June 7th through the 10th. She added others should look for future information about photographer Andrew Pilage, who is working to photograph all 500 Frank Lloyd Wright properties around the world. I'm very excited about the year ahead, said James. And with that, we will go ahead and we'll move to the obituaries. Dorothy J. Baumgartner, 92, of Mason City, passed away Saturday, December 24th at her home in Kentucky Ridge. Funeral services will be held 2.30 p.m. Friday, December 30th at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street, Northeast Mason City, with Reverend Kent Meckler of Good Shepherd officiating. She will be laid to rest at Elmwood St. Joseph Cemetery in Mason City. Visitation and public viewings will be held one hour prior to the service at the funeral home. Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapels, 641-423-2372. Carolyn Jane Flatrud, uh, age 82 of Thompson, died on Monday, December 26th, at Mercy One North Iowa Medical Center in Mason City. A funeral service for Carolyn will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, December 30th, at Bethany Lutheran Church, 183 2nd Avenue East in Thompson, with Elizabeth Carr, pastoral intern officiating. Visitation for Carolyn will be from 9 to 11 at the church on Friday. Burial will take place at a later date in Rose Hill Cemetery in Thompson. Carolyn Jane, formerly Matthews, Flatrud, was born on January 1st, 1940, in rural Leland, Iowa. The daughter of Martel and Agnes Matthews, she was baptized and confirmed at Winnebago Lutheran Church and graduated from Lake Mills High School with a class of 1957. On November 28, 1959, Carolyn was united in marriage with Roger Flatrod of Winnebago Lutheran Church, and the couple was blessed with two children, Mark and Joan. They made their home in Thompson, Iowa, where Carolyn was the friendly face at the Thompson Post Office for 30 years. Carolyn enjoyed taking trips to the casino with her best friend, Sharon, caring for her grand puppies, Duke, Stella, and Maggie, and she will be remembered for making the best chocolate chip cookies. Her survivors include her son, Mark Flatrud of Thompson, Iowa, and daughter, Joan Flagram of Lake Mills, four grandchildren, Marissa Coppin, Brad, Brandon, and nine great-grandchildren, a sister Valerie Swingin of Britt, brothers and sisters-in-law, Skip and Diana Gallagher of Palatine, Illinois, as well as many extended relatives and a host of friends. Carolyn is preceded in death by her parents, Martel and Agnes Matthews, husband Roger Flatrud, mother-in-law Edna Syme, a brother Arlo Matthews, and two brothers-in-law, Gussie Swingren and Thomas Darr. You can contact the family with online condolences at 641-592-0221. And we have another obituary here. Gary D. Malik, 69, of Rural Gardner, passed away Tuesday, December 27th, at his home surrounded by his family. A memorial visitation will be held from 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, December 31st, at St. 
win at Seaslaw's Catholic Church in Duncan with a rosary at 9 a.m. and a scriptural wake service at 11. In Ehrman, will be at St. John's Catholic Cemetery in Duncan in the spring. Cataldo Funeral Homes is in charge of arrangements. Another obituary for the day. From West Branch, Margie Ellen Mickelson, 101 of West Branch, passed away on December 21st at Crestview Specialty Care. Margie was born on October 26, 1921, in Thornton, Iowa, to Charles and Minnie Moritz. She married Edward Mickelson on May 2, 1939. The couple raised their five children in Mason City, Iowa, before Edward passed away from leukemia in 1975. Margie was a seamstress and a cook for many years, working at several local businesses and restaurants in Mason City, Iowa, before eventually retiring. She enjoyed crocheting, sewing, and most of all, playing cards. She belonged to several card clubs in West Branch, with her favorite card game being Pinochle, Canasta, and 31, which she especially enjoyed playing with her family. In her later years, she moved to West Branch, where she lived with her daughter Mick for more than 25 years, enjoying each other's company. Her family would like to thank Crestview Specialty Care for the loving care given to Margie the last two years of her life. She is survived by her four children, Marilyn Smith of Hampton, Iowa, Marsha Potter of Mason City, Marcella McLaughlin of West Branch, and Edward Mickelson, Jr. of Mason City, son-in-law Jim Bricker of Shelby, 17 grandchildren, and several great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. Margie was preceded in death by her parents, husband, one daughter, Myrna Bricker, four sons-in-law, Bob, Bill, Bob, and Jack, three siblings, Harry, Irvin, and Edna May, and two grandchildren, Lynn and Carter. Private family services will be held with burial, held at Pleasant View Cemetery in Thornton, Iowa. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be directed to Alzheimer's Association or Crestview Specialty Care in West Branch. And our last obituary for the day, Diana Lynn Hollihan. Diana Lynn Hollihan passed away peacefully on December 24th at the Muse Norris Hospice Inpatient Unit in Mason City. A memorial mass will be held at 10.30, Friday, December 30th, at the Epiphany Parish Holy Family Catholic Church. Visitation will be held from 4 until 7 p.m. Thursday, December 29th, at the Major Erickson Funeral Home, 111 North Pennsylvania Avenue, with a scripture wake service beginning at 6.30. Memorials may be directed to Hospice of North Iowa or the, Dia, uh, or the Alzheimer's Association. Diana was born on September 16, 1950 in Mason City to Robert and Beverly Frank. She grew up in Mason City and graduated from Mason City High School in 1969. Diana grew up on the north end of Mason City, and for those of you from the area know that the north end revolved around hard work, family, fellowship, and having fun. All four of these traits were part of Diana's core and personality for the rest of her life. It was, as Mason City High School that it was at Mason City High School that Diana met the love of her life, Patrick Hollihan. Diana married her high school sweetheart, Patrick Brian Hollihan, on November 21, 1970. The couple moved to New Orleans, Louisiana for three years while Patrick was in the Navy, then returned to Mason City to raise their family. The couple was blessed with two children, Chris, born in 1972 in New Orleans, Louisiana, and Kelly, born in 1975 in Mason City. For her children's early years, Diana stayed at home and raised Chris and Kelly. 
She later became an assistant preschool teacher and worked several years as a paraeducator in the Mason City school system. Diana was very involved in her church, Holy Family Catholic Church. She was a member of the St. Gregory's Women's Circle for 30 years, served several volunteer roles at the church, and volunteered at the local food bank. She also was the co-director of the Newman Catholic Daycare for six years. One of Diana's greatest joys were her grandchildren. She was blessed with five wonderful grandchildren who loved her dearly, Jacob and Zach Duran and McKenna, Kate, and Colin Hollihan. In their retirement years, Pat and I loved to travel, spending time with their family and attended all of the grandchildren's sporting, musical, theater, and school events. All of those that knew Diana will remember her for her kind heart, loving soul, and fun personality. Many of you got to witness her county dance moves, playful singing games with her grandchildren, eat some of her amazing cooking, and if you were really lucky, you got to see Diana sing her favorite classic country songs with husband Pat playing bass and Father Bob playing the guitar. She was a bright light for all of us, and she will be missed dearly. Diana is survived by her husband, Patrick Hollihan, her children, Chris and wife, Brooke Hollihan, Kelly and husband, Marlon Duran, grandchildren, um, and many nieces and nephews. Diana was preceded in death by her parents, Bob and Beverly Frank, brother Randy Frank, and father-in-law, James Hollihan. Arrangements are with Major Erickson Funeral Home and Crematory, 111 North Pennsylvania Avenue, Mason City, 641-423-0924. With that, we'll go ahead and we'll move into some sports. And I'll actually start with some high school basketball from Tuesday, just to get the scores uh, in the Metro. Spencer 81 over Mason City 61. Clear Lake tops Algona 48 to 36 in the area. New Hampton over Charles City 67 to 21. Garner Hayfield Ventura 69 over Eagle Grove 30. North Union 66, topping Lake Mills with 26. Hampton Dumont Cal 51, Webster City 49. St. Ansgar 52 over Rockford 3. West Fork 60 over Osage 35. Riceville 48, Waterloo Christian 33. Prep Boys, Mason City over Spencer, 57-52. Newman Catholic, 57, West Hancock, 42. Clear Lake, 77, Algona, 48. In the area, Lake Mills, 60, topping North Union, 42. 60-22, Forest City over Belmont Clemmy. Northwood Kensett, 68, over Central Springs, 60. Garner Hayfield Ventura, topping Eagle Grove, 71-57. West Fork 70, Osage 53, and Waterloo Christian 95, Riceville 63, and finally St. Ansgar 69, Rockford 55. Slumping Jets, Seahawks, desperate for win. Six weeks ago, it seemed both the New York Jets and Seattle Seahawks were shoo-ins for the NFL playoffs. When the teams meet Sunday afternoon in Seattle, they'll be clinging to slim postseason hopes as both have lost five of their past six games. According to 538.com, the Seahawks 7-8 and eight, have a 27% chance to make the NFC playoffs, while the Jets 7-8 and eight, have a 15% shot to make the AFC field. These last two games will be enormous for us, obviously, Seahawks coach Pete Carroll said. We are playing the championship of the season right now. That is how we are going to approach it to get it done and give a chance 
to be in it in the end. The Seahawks are a half game behind Washington, 7-7-1 for the NFC's seventh and final postseason berth. They have home games remaining against the Jets and Los Angeles Rams, who are 5-10. But Seattle has lost three in a row at home and will try to avoid its first four-game skid at Lumen Field since 2008. The Seahawks have failed to hold a lead in any of their past three games, including a 24-10 loss last Saturday at Kansas City. We had a tough stretch, but that's in the past. That's got to be in the past, Seahawks quarterback Geno Smith said. Kenneth Walker III showed he's back to full health after an ankle injury as he rushed for 107 yards against the Chiefs. And Seattle's leaky run defense limited Kansas City to 77 yards. But the Seahawks were just 2 of 14 on third down conversions and failed to score on three of their trips inside the Chiefs' 40-yard line. We're not playing connected to help one another out and take advantage of a terrific day of defense, Carroll said. The Seahawks could get a boost from the return of wide receiver Tyler Lockett, who missed last week's game after undergoing surgery December 19th to repair a broken bone in his left hand. But tight end Will Disley, knee, was placed on injured reserve, ending his season. The Jets are ninth in the AFC race behind Miami at 8-7 and and New England 7-8. They could snap an 11-year playoff drought if they win their final two games, including the regular season finale at Miami, and the Patriots lose one of their final two games at home against the Dolphins or at Buffalo, who are 12-3. We've still got to find ourselves, we've still got to find confidence, and we've got to get the ball rolling. Jets coach Roger Sala said, and it starts with how we prepare day in and day out and how we attack these moments. The playoffs and all that stuff is cool, but we've got to stay connected to this moment in Seattle and Seattle only. Sala announced Mike White will start at quarterback after missing the past two games, including last Thursday's 19-3 loss to visiting Jacksonville with broken ribs. Sala indicated Joe Flacco would serve as White's backup and Zach Wilson, who passed for just 92 yards against the Jaguars, will go from starting the past two games to being the number three quarterback. I thought Mike had been doing a great job moving the offense, sustaining drives and getting first downs, Sala said, much more efficient. Our offense was running with some good efficiency. It's a great opportunity for him, a great opportunity for everybody. Starting free safety, LaMarcus Joyner might also return after missing the past two games with a hip injury. And our next sports article. With regular season, fate of both teams already decided, there will be just one prize at stake when the Los Angeles Chargers play host to the Los Angeles Rams on Sunday at Eaglewood, California. The defending Super Bowl champion Rams 5-10 and 10, already have been eliminated from playoff consideration. The playoff-bound Chargers 9-6 earned a wildcard spot with a victory over the Indianapolis Colts on Monday. The circumstances leave the Battle of Los Angeles as the only honor to focus upon this Sunday. It is the second time the teams have met in a regular season game since the Rams moved back to Los Angeles from St. Louis in 2016 and the Chargers moved north from San Diego in 2017. The Rams defeated the Chargers 35-23 in 2018, but it is the first time the teams have met for a regular season game in their shared home of SoFi Stadium. They have played each other in the preseason, including a matchup this past August. 
Moving to college football, Ohio State running back Mayan Williams, who is expected to play in the Peach Bowl. Ohio State running back Mian Williams is expected to play Saturday in the college football playoff semifinal despite an illness that has kept him out of practice this week. Coach Brian Day said Williams is ready to return to the practice field. He's got a stomach bug and we expect him at practice today, Day said Thursday. We just got to take it as we go. Day said the Buckeyes largely are in good physical shape heading into the semifinal to be played at the Peach Bowl in Atlanta. On the season, Williams leads Ohio State in rushing with 817 yards and 13 touchdowns. He has assumed the role of lead running back in the absence of Trey Vion Henderson, who had surgery earlier this year to treat an ongoing foot injury and is out for the season. That was the right thing for Trey. And just like that, I apologize. The computer snapped, but it's back. All these guys have been preparing hard and have some good options. Limited to eight games because of injury, Henderson ran for 571 yards and six touchdowns. Dallin Hayen was third on the Buckeyes with 510 yards and five touchdowns. Either Ohio State 11-1 or top-ranked Georgia 13-0 will meet the winner of the other semifinal game. Michigan 13-0 and TCU 12-1 are meeting Saturday in the Fiesta Bowl field from field-level media. Another article here. As CT turns 38, LeBron is clear. He still wants title shots. From Miami, it was 2006. LeBron James wasn't even midway through his first stint in Cleveland. He made the playoffs for the first time, was already a globally recognized star, and well on his way to becoming the game's best player. As a 21-year-old, he averaged 30.2 points. Fast forward 16 years. He's left Cleveland, gone to Miami, won two championships, gotten married, Became a father of three, gone back to Cleveland, won another championship, left for Los Angeles, won a fourth championship with the Lakers, still a giant star, still in the best player conversation. As a 37-year-old, he averaged 30.1 points. James turns 38 on Friday, midway through his 20th season. Nobody in NBA history has averaged so many points as a 37-year-old. Not even close. Carl Malone averaged 23.2 points at the age. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar averaged 20.2. And Julius Irving averaged 20.2. There have been 150 players in NBA history who played at 37. The average scoring clip of the other 149 was 8.3 points per game. Yet there, here is James, simply not slowing down. He averaged more points at 37 than he did at 22, or 23, or 24, or any other age over the last 16 years. I know how feverishly he works on his game, Lakers coach Darvin Ham said. Just being in the gym, seeing him in the gym, you know, he's not just out there playing his own individual game of horse. He actually works on the shots and just being ready to be able to strike from any zone or any distance. James is closing in on passing Abdul-Jabbar for the NBA career scoring record, They're separated by only 574 points, and he's on prolific, and he's as prolific a scorer as he's ever been. I do know how much I put into the game, James said. I know how much I put into my body, into my mind, and all of those things. But I kind of surprise myself sometimes just at the level. When you look at the history of the game, it doesn't seem like many have played at this level for this many years 
and this many miles and things on their resume. Not many, if any. Not at 37 anyway. He averaged not just the 30.1 points, but 8.5 rebounds and 6.2 assists during his lap around the sun. Only six players at the age averaged more rebounds. Only four players. Steve Nash, Chris Paul, Jason Kidd, and John Stockton. Four of the best point guards ever. Averaged more assists at 37. At his current pace, James could catch Abdul-Jabbar for the scoring record by early February. And he doesn't intend to stop playing anytime soon either. So that record might be way out of reach by the time James is actually done. He constantly works at his craft, said Miami coach Eric Spolstra, the only coach to win more than one championship with James. So he's going to continue to develop new skills to put in his toolkit. He doesn't get bored with that process, you can tell. He's like a computer. When he sees another player work on something or do something in the game, he says, oh, I want to try that. He never gets bored with that. He has, however, gotten bored with losing. The Lakers are 14-21 and and are without perennial all-star big man Anthony Davis, who remains out with a foot injury with no timetable for his return. They are mired near the bottom of the NBA and need a big rally in order to avoid missing the playoffs for a second consecutive season. Since James and Davis led the Lakers to the 2020 NBA title, the teams hasn't lost a playoff series. It went out in the first round in 21 and didn't make it in 22. Uh, And I believe with that, and given the time, I'm just going to go ahead and move to weather. And this is taking one quick second to load. I am currently reading this at uh, 12.18 Central Standard Time. The current temperature in Mason City is 36 degrees on December 29th. Today, a mix of clouds and sun during the morning will give way to cloudy skies this afternoon. Slight chance of a rain shower. High of 36 degrees, winds west to northwest at 5 to 10 miles an hour. Tonight, cloudy early with some clearing expected late, low of 14 degrees. Winds west to northwest at 10 to 20 miles an hour. Tomorrow, mainly sunny, a high of 26, winds southwest at 5 to 10 miles an hour. And with that, I'll bring up the end of our 55 minutes. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for December 29th, Thursday. I'm your reader, Ben Stein. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. With half a dozen measles outbreaks currently underway in the U.S., as well as several serious international outbreaks, the news on measles vaccine from Denmark is important. Researchers conducted a nationwide study that included everyone born between 1999 and 2010. With more than 650,000 children in that group, they had more than 5 million person years of follow-up. The Danish health system keeps excellent records on all of its citizens, including the children. Consequently, the scientists are confident that the 6,517 children diagnosed with autism during the study period are all the children who developed this condition. Children who did not receive the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, or MMR, were equally likely as vaccinated children to develop autism. The investigators conclude, the study strongly supports that MMR vaccination does not increase the risk for autism, does not trigger autism in susceptible children, and is not associated with clustering of autism cases after vaccination. The Food and Drug Administration has just approved a completely new type of antidepressant, The nasal spray, called esketamine, is expected to help people who have not responded to standard antidepressants. It will be marketed under the brand name Spravato. This drug is chemically related to the injectable anesthetic ketamine that's been on the market since 1970 and is available generically. Although esketamine is administered as a nasal spray, people will not be permitted to purchase it for home use. They will need to use Spravato under medical supervision at a clinic or doctor's office. Some experts have challenged the FDA's approval process for esketamine. While two clinical trials demonstrated some benefit, two others did not show that esketamine is better than placebo. Side effects of this novel antidepressant include nausea, dizziness, headache, and a feeling of dissociation. FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb unexpectedly announced his departure from the agency this week. Experts were puzzled by his announcement since he has received high marks from the administration, industry, and even some consumer groups. Dr. Gottlieb has raised questions about teen vaping and has been an outspoken critic of pharmacy chains that sell tobacco products to minors. Some commentators speculate that these stances might be related to his abrupt departure. His explanation for the sudden departure is that he wants to spend more time with his wife and young children. Dr. Gottlieb is a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Another week, another drug recall. Many lots of ARB blood pressure drugs, including Losartan, Valsartan, and Herbisartan, have been recalled over the past eight months. These medicines were contaminated with potential carcinogens known as NDMA and NDEA. Now, Heterolabs has recalled 87 lots, and Tarrant Pharmaceuticals Limited is recalling 100 lots of Losartan tablets. These pills contain an entirely new contaminant just identified as NMBA. It, too, is a suspected carcinogen. All three of these nitrosamine contaminants are apparently created as a result of the manufacturing process. FDA Commissioner Gottlieb stated, We're making important strides at understanding how these impurities form, and we're continuing to examine if nitrosamine impurities may also arise during the manufacture of other ARB drug products. 
The FDA is committed to implementing measures to prevent the formation of these impurities during drug manufacturing processes in the future. Cocoa flavonoids may have some benefit for people with multiple sclerosis, according to a small study. Previous research showed that dark chocolate rich in cocoa compounds might improve symptoms of chronic fatigue. The investigators recruited 40 people with relapsing remitting MS to drink cocoa every day for six weeks. 19 of them got high flavonoid cocoa, while 21 drank low flavonoid cocoa. At the end of the study, those on the high flavonoid cocoa had slightly less fatigue and could walk somewhat farther in six minutes than they had at the outset. They also reported less pain. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. 